Okay, so we're recording now. Welcome. And uh, we are starting over from the beginning of the Torah. So what happened was that um, on Simchat Torah, which was last week, we had a holiday in which we read the last Torah portion, number 54, at the end of Deuteronomy. And then we danced with the Torah, we celebrated, and now the Shabbat afterwards, we're starting over from portion number one, which is the first portion in the book of Genesis, which is called Bereshit, uh, which literally means in the beginning, which is why it's called Genesis. So a little bit of, a, of a, I guess, let me just use this opportunity to give a little, little bit of an understanding. The first book of the five books of Moses, the book of Genesis, um, it basically takes us from the creation of the universe until the death of the forefathers, the last of the forefathers, which was Jacob and his children. Um, primarily, we're told of Joseph because that would change the entire situation for the Jewish people in Egypt. The next book, which is the book of Exodus, in the Hebrew it's called Shemot, which means names. It will take us from the passing of Joseph in which all of a sudden Pharaoh changed his attitude towards the Jews. The suffering began. And then you have the birth of Moses. You have the story of the Exodus. You have the Jewish people coming to Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments, um, uh, making the golden calf, being told to build the tabernacle. And that's how the book of Exodus finishes. The book, the third book, which is Leviticus, its Hebrew name is Vayikra, and that word literally means, and he called, meaning God called to Moses. The book Leviticus, primarily because we just built the tabernacle, primarily it's going to talk to us about the service in the tabernacle, later to become um, the holy temple once it gets into Israel, and uh, eventually and uh, all the laws concerning what goes on in that house, um, what was the inauguration, um, what are the laws of the sacrifices, what are the laws of the incense, what are the laws of the libations, and what are the laws of the Levites and the Kohanim, the priests. Then the book of Numbers, which in Hebrew is called Bamidbar in the desert, talks primarily from when we're going to leave Mount Sinai, almost get into Israel, spies come back with a bad report. We spend 40 years in the desert. Now, the last book called Deuteronomy, which is actually a play off a, a name of that book, which is Mishneh Torah, um, but its uh, official name is actually Devarim, which means the words, uh, and it's referring to the words of Moses. So the book of Deuteronomy is actually Moses' 37-day farewell spe speech. And then it finishes on the 37th day, which is the seventh day of the Hebrew calendar month of Adar, the Jewish calendar month, the lunar calendar. And that is the day that Moses passes away. And then from the five books of Moses, we go into the prophets, which will begin with Joshua taking the Jews into Egypt. So now you have pretty much a, a brief overhaul of the five books of Moses. So it begins with the, the story of creation. 
Now, there is so much to speak about in this just the opening, just the six days of creation and the seventh day of Shabbat. Um, I want to just give you briefly, because we're going to get into a specific topic. So briefly, I want to share with you that the first letter of the Torah is a bet, which is not the first of the 22 Hebrew alphabets, it's the second one. Now, and there's whole questions, why does the Torah start with the letter bet and not with the letter aleph? And there's right away the insight that the Ten Commandments starts with the letter Aleph instead, but the book of Genesis begins with the Bet. One of the teachings is that if you actually look at the letter Bet, it looks like this. Actually, I'm doing it backwards because I'm facing me. So from you, it would be this way, right? Because in Hebrew, you write from right to left. So this would be your right. It starts with a closure. One line, two line. So it's almost like a bracket, a parenthesis. And our sages tell us the reason why Genesis starts with a bet is to let us know that we cannot extrapolate nor understand what happened pre-bet, pre-Genesis. It's closed off to us. And what do I mean by that? So I'm just going to share with you one Kabbalistic teaching which have already let us understand why the human mind cannot perceive what happened before um, the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of the creation of the universe. So our sages teach us, the Masrit Magid, a very famous um, um, Hasidic Rebbe, he was a student of the Baal Shem Tov, the, the teacher of the first Chabad Lubavitch Rebbe, and he teaches like this, the word, the letter Bet, from the word Bereshit, as I told you, the bet is the second letter. Thus, it has the numerical value of two. He teaches that the first thing that God created in order to have a universe was two things, bet, two things, which really are interconnected. And that is time and space. So what we're now understanding is that before Genesis, before the first day of creation, there was no such thing as time and there was no such thing as space. So immediately when you ask the question, okay, but what happened before creation? Or in what year did God create the universe? These are questions that don't make sense once you realize that there was no such thing as time or space before God began creation. And thus God's name, the ineffable tetragrammaton, which we do not know how to correctly pronounce, and today instead we pronounce it as A-D-O-N-A-I, which makes no sense to the letterings because the letter is a Yud-Hey-Vav-Hey. So therefore, what we do know from that name of God, the yud k vav k has within it the letters for Hebrew, for past, present, and future. Haya, hove, yiye. Which means that from this perspective, the infinite light of God, which is primordial, it, by definition, past, present, and future coexist because it itself 
transcends time. There is no concept of time here. And the same thing with place. Now, when it comes to place, we can understand a little bit that there are certain things that defy space. For example, the mathematical law of two plus two is four does not manifest itself in place. Um, uh, you know, intellect, uh, it doesn't manifest itself in place. Um, time, we have the power of imagination to transport ourselves into a past in where even though we're sitting here by the table now, we're completely lost to our present surroundings and we're reliving the past. But that all is that in the present, we can mentally, emotionally transport ourselves to the past. But to truly say that there exists no past, present, and future, no boundaries between the two, the human mind cannot, cannot perceive it. By the way, for those of you who know me, or <laughs> been around with me for a while, you'll know I'll sometimes refer to, you know, some secular books or movies. And uh, those of you who know, I was a staunt um, Harry Potter fan. And I found it very amazing that in one of the Harry Potter movies, if you remember, Harry and her mind were given a certain necklace in which to be able to go back in time as present. So I'm not going to get into that whole scene over there, but I found that very interesting for the human mind not to just have this movies of transporting back in time, but the coexistence of past and present. Um, that's something that the human mind usually cannot deal with. So I just want to share with you again that the first closure to primordial is that we live under the definition and properties of time and space and have no understanding of what it would be not to live within that realm, which is under the dominance of time and space. Okay, now let's just move along now so we can... Um, go through the Torah portion and then focus on, on um, this one topic I wanted to share with you. So if you look at the opening verses of Genesis, it's uh, a lot to discuss. Because if you ask anyone, what was created on the first day? They'll tell you, oh, of course, Rabbi. It says, and God said, let there be light. So light was created on the first day. But let's give another look at the verse. And it says, in the beginning, meaning on the first day, God created heaven and earth. We look in the second verse, and you're going to see that it says that the Spirit of God hovered upon the water. Okay, now we know that God also created water. So there was a bunch of stuff created on the first day, and yet we speak specifically about light. I want to share with you that according to Rashi, Rab Shlomo Yitzchaki, and also Nachmanides, they learn out of the words, bara, create. So formation, when we say that God formed, what it means is he made something out of something by reforming the original something. When we use the word creation, we're talking about what we refer to in Latin as ex nihilo, something out of nothing. 
According to our sages, the only day in which God formed something out of nothing was on day one. The rest of the six days was formation and fermentation, fermenting. So therefore, according to this teaching, everything was created on the first day. It was only fermented, formed, and completed on the other days. Now, each creation in its correct day. I've seen some religious scientists approach this by saying that on the first day, God created mass. That is the ex nihilo, the creation of mass. Once you have mass, everything else is only going to be a formation of the mass. So that would be in Latin, ex ex, something from something, not something from nothing. So that's another Kabbalistic insight to the creation. Now, for example, on the second day, it doesn't seem that God created anything new. God just drew boundaries into what already existed. Because in day one, when we said he created heaven and earth, earth was completely covered by water. And thus he created a boundary between the upper waters and the lower waters, and thus fermenting a heaven, a shamayim. Shamayim, the Hebrew word for heaven, has many mystical teachings. One is that it is made up of the two words, esh umayim, fire and water. Another teaching is shamayim, there is water. Another teaching is samayim, it carries water. And then on the lower waters, God made boundaries by gathering together waters so that the earth beneath can be seen. And thus we now have oceans and land. Now, Rashi points out that from one aspect, all the oceans are but one ocean because they're all connected. Nevertheless, he explains that the reason why God refers to it in the plural as oceans is because each of the oceans have its own property, its own properties in, in how, how, you know, how it works, um, actually in the effect it has on the living creatures within them. So therefore, he refers to it as plural. But really, if you take a picture of the entire globe, you can't say that there's one ocean with land emerged within it. Nevertheless, we call it oceans. And there's a Hebrew name for the, for the Atlantic Ocean and for the, for the Pacific Ocean, um, Ukainis, there's different names. Now, because he didn't finish the fermentation on the second day, so therefore God did not say, and he saw and it was good. Rather, on the third day is when he fermented what he did on the second day. So therefore, on the third day, because he's finishing the work of the second day, it says he saw the oceans and the land, and it was good. But then he went to do what he did on the third day, which was to bring forth grass, trees, fruits, vegetables from the ground. Thus, on Tuesday, it says twice the words, and God saw, and it was good. There is a custom 
that when we do certain things, a lot of people would like to do them on Tuesday or on Friday, because those are the two days in Genesis where God said twice it was good. We'll soon see about the Friday, but meanwhile you saw about the Tuesday. Now, there's a mystical teaching, which is very beautiful, that says because on the second day it was all about separation, God does not see separation as good, and therefore he doesn't say on the second day it was good. Now, I want to give you one more mystical teaching. So in the world of Kabbalah and Hasidus, God's connection to the world, since God is infinite, his light is infinite, there would be no way for finite creatures to be able to receive in a sustainable fashion its life force from the infinite. It would be beyond plugging a 110 appliance into a 220 wire, a, a plug. So we're talking about here, plugging a finite into an infinite surge of energy. That wouldn't work. Thus, Kabbalah tells us that God created a transformer system, so to speak, which are the 10 emanations. The 10 emanations break into three intellects and seven emotions. The world, which was created in seven days, was created from the seven emotions. Now, when you learn through Kabbalah, you'll see that the first emotion is kindness. Thus, on the first day, he created light. The second day is the emanation of Giburah, which is strictness, justice, boundaries. Thus, we have separation. And this will continue through all seven days. Let's just jump ahead without going through all of them. The sixth emanation is foundation. On the sixth day was created mankind, which is the foundation of the universe. On the seventh day is kingship, and thus we have the regality of Shabbat. So I just wanted you to know that in Kabbalah, when we talk about the six days and the seven days, we're talking about day as light equals emanation, just thus we're talking about the seven emotion emanations through which God creates and vivifies the world. By the way, the same thing will play itself out through the millenniums. The first millennium was the millennium of kindness. Thus, we're going to find in the Torah that people lived large, huge lives, uh, 930 years, Adam and others, huge in the hundreds. In the second millennium, that's going to stop. Also in the second millennium, we have the justice that took place in the punishment of the flood and in the, and in the uh, punishment of the tower, the Migdal Bavel. Then we also have in the third millennium, which is Tiferet, which is the attribute of truth. Thus it is in the third millennium that the Torah, the book of truth was given to the world. And this continues, okay? Now, let's go further in the creations. So, on the fourth day, God created the sun and the moon. Now, interesting. I'm just going to share with you Kabbalistic stuff here, just like we always do, some insights. Um, the verse says that God created the two great luminaries. And right after that, it says, and the big luminary he placed to rule over the day, which would be the sun, 
and the small luminary to rule over the night, which would be the moon. Now the sages want to know, wait, whoa, 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 what's going on here? He created two equally big ones, and all of a sudden we have a big and a small. So we're taught that the moon came to God and said, you cannot have two rulers over one kingdom. So how can you have two sons, as in S-U-N-S? And the sages tell us that God told the moon, you're right, go ahead and make yourself small. And there's a lot of Kabbalah. If you look up in my SoundCloud, there's beautiful teachings in Hasidus. Why, if he was right, then why did God tell him, you know, oh, you're right, you make yourself small. One second, if he's right, then he's right. Why well, don't punish him that he has to be the small one. There's beautiful teachings. What I want to share with you is that based on this teaching, that there's a sun and a moon, which becomes a giver and a recipient. Thus, we have throughout the entire universe this concept of the giver and the recipient. And this plays itself out through the act of charity. There's the giver and there's the recipient. Now, what I also wanna share with you is that according to Kabbalah, the diminishment of the moon is what opened up for the potential of sin because all of a sudden now we have concealment rather than revelation. Sin is possible through the concealment. When there is revelation and we consciously feel and see the presence of God, there is no place for sin. Okay, let's go further. Then we have on the fifth day, we have the creation of the fish and we have the creation of the birds. On the sixth day, I'm sorry, on the fifth day, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, on the sixth day, we then have the creation of the mammals and the large animals, and we also have the creation of the human being. Now, I wanna just share with you different insights into the teachings. In verse 27, it says, and God created mankind in his image, in the image of God, he created it, male and female, he created them. According to our sages, Adam and Eve existed from the very first moment of human beings, only that they were as one being. Thus, most people say that God took a rib because the word tzela can be used as a rib. But you should know that our sages say that the word tzela means a side meaning that God took one side of him and separated it. The male and the female were no more one being, they were two separate beings. I will share with you that according to the teachings, that is why male and females can get married because they were originally one being divided into two halves. Okay, now he tells, he tells Adam right away that you can eat from all the fruits of the garden. However, you cannot eat from the tree of knowledge and the tree of, uh, the tree of knowledge, he says you can't eat from. Now, I wanna point out something that most people don't know. For 10 generations from Adam to Noah, human beings were obligatory to be vegetarians. They were not allowed to eat meat. The first time you have 
God talking to mankind about the laws of meat, that you're not allowed to eat blood and you're not allowed to take a, a, a limb, God forbid, from a living animal and eat it. Um, you have to first, uh, you know, take its life and then uh, you can cut it up and, and eat it. That begins with Noah. And the simple reason for this is because Adam had no right to live off animals because he did nothing for their life. However, because Noah was the one who saved all the animals by collecting them and bringing them into the ark, thus at that point, God told Noah, you can live from the animals, okay? And again, I'm not getting into this whole animal rights movement or anything. All I can share with you is that from Noah, God gave permission to, for mankind to live off the consumption of animals. However, he has given very strict rules that govern how humane we have to be in taking the life of an animal and in eating from the animal. Okay, with all of this said, he then introduces Shabbat, okay? And in Kabbalah, once again, we have a huge conversation. God does not need to rest. God's work is not called work in the sense of it's strenuous and it's exhausting. So what does it mean? And it talks over here in Kabbalah that what it really means is what we call the ebb and the flow. Because God created everything in an ebb and a flow um, motion, you know, the human heart, the blood system, everything is ebb and flow. So therefore, the way creation is, is that the emanations, the lights shine downwards, giving sustenance, and then they return upwards, which is the rejuvenation of the lights from the source, and then again coming downwards, up, down, up, down. So in a Kabbalistic level, Shabbat is the elevation where the lights are returning into their source to rejuvenate, from which they'll once again come and give that, um, that life sustenance to, to, um, to all of creation. Now, uh, we're told, interesting enough, how there is, I just want to set this straight, there is Eden, and in Eden there is a garden, and there is a river that comes out of Eden to irrigate the garden. And from there, the river breaks into four major river heads. And that's what you're seeing in the verses, okay? Now, Adam and Eve lived in a physical garden of Eden. That does not exist today. The simple teachings is that that was the land of Israel once had the spiritual presence of the garden of Eden in it. And that's why that's where Adam was, because we're taught that Adam was taken he was made from earth and made from earth means that he was taken from the very earth of where the altar was to be built by king david slash king solomon on on temple mount in jerusalem why so so our sages said god said let me take mankind's origin from his place of atonement because he and she will be imperfect he or she will sin, he or she will need atonement, thus let me create them from the very earth of where the altar of atonement will be built. 
Now, I just want to share with you one more concept. Every single creature, if you read the verses in Genesis, the body and the soul emerge together. They emerge as living creatures. Thus the verse says, and God said, let the earth give forth living animals. Let the water give forth living fish. Let the, the water give forth living birds. So the only exclusion is that all of a sudden by Adam, we see it says that God formed his body from the earth. And then God blew into his nostrils a soul of life. Excuse me. Now, there are sages that say that Adam had two souls. There's actually a very great Kabbalist, a very great Sephardic rabbi. His name was Rab Chaim Ben Atar, and he wrote a book called the Orachayim, very big sage. And he writes over there that in truth, Adam was a living being before God blew in the soul of life. Thus, what, do we, what does it mean that God blew into his nostrils the soul of life? He explains that the first soul that existed in Adam is like the soul that exists in every creature, which is called the animalistic soul, which is called the spiritual of the physical, meaning that it is the life force within the body itself. However, then God blew within his nostrils a soul of life. This refers to the godly soul. The, the Rav Chaim Ben Atar, who I quoted to you, he refers to it as the nefesh hasichlis, the intellectual soul, which is going to lead me to a little introduction to the next portion. What does it mean that Adam ate from the tree of knowledge? What changed within Adam when he ate from the tree of knowledge? And the simple answer is that Adam, before he ate from the tree of knowledge, he was already unique in his power of intellect. He had intellect, not like animals, which intellect is only connected to their instincts, eat, don't be eaten, and procreate. But rather, Adam was able to think about things outside of his own survival. It wasn't just a reptilian brain. He already had the frontal cortex before he ate from the tree of knowledge. And what that means is that you'll see in the verse that God brought him all the animals he should name them. Our sages say that he immediately became conscious of God and said to all of creation, let us bow and prostrate ourselves before our creator, our master. What changed when he ate from the tree of knowledge was he now internalized the concept of evil. And the first manifestation of his getting in contact with the concept of evil was shame. And thus the first thing you see that Adam and Eve do once they become aware of the concept of the dark side, of ego, of selfishness, of self-serving, of self-pleasure, the first thing they have is shame. They realize they're naked. They realize that certain organs in their body can be really the concept of only self-gratification, and thus they immediately cover them. 
So it's not that Adam and Eve were not intellectual beings with frontal cortexes before the tree of knowledge, but they only had the knowledge of goodness. Thus, there was no shame in nakedness. Thus, there was no shame in their being. However, once they ate from the tree of knowledge and they consumed sin, they digested sin, thus two things happened. They became connected to shame and to temptations. And now all of a sudden we understand why God tells them that on the day that you eat from the tree of knowledge, you will die. And over here, by the way, we have a verse that says that for God, a day is a thousand years. Thus, Adam died before a thousand. He was supposed to live for a thousand, but he gave 70 years of his life to King David. Thus, he died at the age of 930. Now, what happens is the reason why mankind has to die now is because once sin connected itself to mankind, thus, if mankind lives forever, evil lives forever. The process of dying and decomposition and shedding the physical and the egocentric to be able to free the spiritual and the theocentric is only because mankind connected with sin. Okay, let's go further. Once he ate from the tree of knowledge and God punishes all three of them, the serpent, the, um, the Eve, and Adam, then God takes Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and puts blockages by the Garden of Eden so that they cannot enter no more. And therefore, they will not be able to eat from the tree of life. Now, from a Kabbalistic point of view, we have a verse in, from King Solomon in the Book of Songs, which talks about how God, by sins, God left the lower realms. In other words, when Garden of Eden left the physical world and now became only a spiritual place, it's because by sin, God's revelation was pushed away from the earth, so to speak. And thus our sages tell us that sin pushes away, per se, the feet of God. Not that God has feet, none of that. It's all metaphorical. Now, we go further with that. We talk about how Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. By the way, our sages are of the opinion that Cain and Abel were born in the Garden of Eden. Not the way the verses tell it, that it seems like chronologically they were born later. And the reason they were able to be born in the Garden of Eden is because, as you will remember, the punishment to Eve was all the complications in pregnancy and in childbirth and in the menstrual cycle. Before that, there was no such concept of gestation taking a duration of time. Thus, on the very day that they were created, on that very day, they bore children. That changed once the punishment came and they were out of the Garden of Eden. So, when they're out of the Garden of Eden, Cain is jealous of Abel. Um, the simple story is because Cain is the one that came up with an idea to bring a gift to God. Abel was humble enough and, and teachable enough to say, you know what, that's a beautiful idea. I'm also going to do it. The difference is that Cain did not bring from the best of his, of his um, produce, 
while Abel brought from the best of his animals, and thus God turned to Abel's gift and not to Cain. And God sees that Cain is upset and Cain is jealous. And therefore God turns to Cain and says, why are you having a resentment? It was a lesson I'm teaching you. If you're going to give me, give me from your best. Don't give me grade B. And he tells him that you will always have temptation. You will always have the egocentric. You will always struggle with giving away to others and to me from your best. But you should know that you were given the power to dominate your evil inclination. Cain, instead of humbly accepting the lesson, he kept his resentment building and building. And as you know, suppression will lead to explosion. And eventually he can't take it no more. And he takes the life of Abel. Now, when God sees that, God, just like with Adam, he, go, he does not suddenly shock Cain. Just like with Adam, he asks Adam, where are you? And Adam answers, and that's how God gets into the conversation. So, through, so too with Cain, he begins with a question. What happened to your brother? Giving Cain again the opportunity that even though he did the unthinkable, he took a human life, nevertheless, he was granted the opportunity to all of a sudden, excuse me, humbly acknowledge that his anger and his resentment led him to an horrific act and to ask for a tikkun, to be able to do teshuvah, a soul correction, and make amends, but instead he takes the high road. How, how am I supposed to know where my brother is? What am I, my brother's keeper? And then God tells him, the blood of your brother is calling to me from the ground. And thus, God tells Cain that you will be not the nut. You will now, your punishment will be that you will never be able to be in one place, but you will be going back and forth. Now, I just want to share my personal interpretation to this. Guys, I'm going to go back to Harry Potter for a moment. So in Harry Potter, there's this notion called a horror fix. And of course, this is all fantasy. But, you know, everything that we read or see, we should learn something from. Horror fix is taking a piece of your soul and putting it into objects rather than keeping your soul in yourself and just allowing objects to be vehicles through which to serve God and fulfill your soul's destiny. Cain kills Abel, and with that, he loses, I believe, a piece of his soul. The notion of what's going to drive Cain to never be able to settle in one place, I believe, is an expression of a black hole that was created in the center of his being, where he will never be able to find peace, contentment, acceptance. Rather, he will always be chasing what he'll never be able to find. I think that's a deeper meaning to what it means that Cain 
will have to go nov and nod from here to dear, from dear to here. He'll never be able to settle in one place. Now, Cain turns to God and says, is my sin too great for you to bear? And he goes on to say, you're sending me out from safety and thus whoever sees me will kill me. And the sages say that's impossible because the only two human beings that are alive right now is Adam and Eve. His parents aren't going to kill him. Any other human being that will be alive will be his offspring. His offspring isn't going to kill him. So why is he telling God that he's afraid that he's going to get killed? And the sages explain something very interesting. Man is created in the image of God. No other creature has that. And thus, when an animal sees a human being, it will never attack the human being. Thus, the sages tell us an animal will not attack a human being unless it mistakes it for another animal. Now, how would an animal mistake a human being for an animal? Only because the image of God has been removed from that person. Thus, our sages explain us that sin pushes away the image of God from upon us. Thus, to the animal, we're just another mammal. We're no more a human, which is called Adam, from the word Adameh, likened to the supernal one. Thus, God gives Adam a sign, meaning that he's going to place some level of a sign of his infinite omnipotent name upon Cain so that the animals won't kill him. He also tells him that you're going to live for seven generations. And what happens is that seven generations later, there is his offspring, one who is Lemach, one who is blind, and he was hunting. And the way he would hunt is that his grandchild would tell him where the animal is, and he would hunt. And the grandchild made a mistake. He saw something moving in the distance. He said, Grandpa, there it is. And he directs him. And, and his grandfather shoots the arrow, only to find out that he killed his great, 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 great grandfather, which was Cain. And in total devastation, he just takes his two hands and says, I, and without realizing, he actually crushed the skull of his own grandson. And he, uh, see, he killed actually two people. And, and over there, we have, again, his wives react to it. You committed murder. None of us commit murder. And he's, what are you talking about? I did none of it intentionally. And thus, he goes to Adam. Adam tells his, his uh, great, 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 great granddaughters, really, he didn't do anything intentional. And you have no right to punish him for this. You should get back together with him. And they said, oh, really? And since Cain killed your son Abel, you separated yourself from your wife. And thus the next verse tells us that Adam and Eve had a third child. One, as you know, was uh, passed away, was murdered. And now he has another child besides Cain. He has Chase. And then he goes on to tell us all the lineage of the 10 generations. Now, I want to just point out to you something very interesting. In all of this, in all of this going of the generations, 
he follows mostly that of the male. This man had a kid at this age, and then at this age, he had, he had this offspring, so forth and so on. But then there is an offspring, which he tells us about, which I'm looking for right this second. Um, it actually tells us of a woman. Where is that? I'm sorry. Let's go back. Yes. He tells us of the offspring of Cain. And he mentions to us that there is over there a female whose name was Nama. I'm so sorry. I'm actually looking for that. Anyway, this Nama, why can't I find it? This Nama that's mentioned was actually the wife of, of, um, hmm. oh, here it is. Verse 22, from the offspring of Cain was a girl by the name of Nama. Now this Nama, our sages tell us, is the wife of Noah. Now, I didn't see this anywhere. Again, I'm just taking the liberty to share with you my own thought. Why is it important for us to know Noah's wife was Nama from the offspring of Cain? My own thoughts on the matter is, for whatever it's worth, because if we don't know that Noah's wife comes from Cain, that means by the flood, there was a total obliteration of Cain's offspring. And the only ones remaining would be the offsprings of Seth, Chase. But now that we know that Nama comes from Cain, and Nama was Noah's wife, and in the ark was Noah and his wife, their children and their wives, we now know that the seed of Cain also survived the flood. My own thoughts for whatever it's worth. Anyway, it tells us that the people in the land became very bad. It talks about also those, the fallen ones from heaven. And our sages tell us that there were angels that spoke negatively against mankind. And God said, oh, really? You live in a perfect environment, so you're perfect. What would happen if I send you down into a world of darkness? Are you so sure? that you would survive the darkness. They said, absolutely. And God said, okay. And we have the exact name of the angels that were sent down. And actually, they not only did they not survive, they brought perversion to the human beings. And God sees that it's all bad. And God says that he regrets that he did this. He created mankind. And Noah alone was the one that found favor in his eyes. That is the end of the brief Torah class. What I want to now do is go back to the topic of what we said comes from Stephen Covey, which is the author of the seven habits of highly effective people. And one of those um, habits is to always begin with the end in mind. Now, if we're going to apply that to the Torah, then we're going to need to understand that in the opening of the Torah, not only did God tell us about the beginning, he also told us about the end in mind. So we have to look very carefully at the verses and be able to find where in Genesis, in the very beginning of creation, did God already tell us 
what is the purpose and the end in mind. So I'm going to share with you a very interesting story. The Talmud tells us, excuse me. The Talmud tells us of a very interesting Gentile king who gathered together 70 sages. He put them in separate rooms and told them each to translate the Torah. This way thinking he'll forget, he'll get the true translation. Because if he puts them together, they may decide, you know, we shouldn't reveal this, let's change this. So he put them separately. Each one wouldn't know what the other one's doing, so they would have no choice but to be true to the translation. And nevertheless, one of the things the Talmud tells us that they all had the divine inspiration to change was the opening three words of the Torah. Why? Because if you read the simple opening, Bereshis in the beginning, Bara created Elohim God. Now someone who wants to purposely go against the teaching would say, aha, so there was this something that's called Bereshis. We don't know what that is. And this something called Bereshis, Bara, he created Elohim God. So God is not the supernal being who always was, always is, and always will be, but rather God was created. And then this God went on to create the world. So therefore, all of them had the divine inspiration to change the words around and to write it as if it read, God created in the beginning, rather than in the beginning created God. Why am I sharing this with you? Because the Holy Baal Shem Tov has an amazing teaching on why the words in the Torah are in the order that they are. And he says as follows, Bereshis, he says the deeper meaning of in the beginning should be for the purpose of. The entire purpose, the entire beginning of creation was because of the purpose and the mission, bara Elohim, to create God. And he says, what does that mean? We don't create God. So he brings a proof that the word create also means revelation. And he explains like this. God created a world in which there is concealment. We do not see God. We need to find God. And the reason God did this is because only through the concealment of his revelation can there be this concept of freedom of choice. So therefore, the first thing God does is contraction, concealment, partitions, so that the divinity should not be noticeable. And thus, we now have something called Mother Nature, which is like a glove on God's hand. And we can live our entire life as atheists saying that there's only a glove and I don't believe that in the glove there's a hand. There's a system, it's logical, it's natural forces. That's what God did. Comes along the Balshemtov and says, and why did God do that? So there can be freedom of choice. And what would happen if there's freedom of choice? then mankind would have to borrow, reveal, Elohim, God, within Hashemayim Vaharetz, within the heaven and the earth. And that's why God created the world. Even though God has 
myriads and myriads of mountains, the ponds of, of, of angels, he has no pleasure in them because angels don't have freedom of choice. God does not enjoy perfection. God enjoys that which is precious. Precious is something that has a freedom of choice to say yes and no, and dug within to be able to say yes. Thus, the entire creation was all about God creating something out of nothing for us to come along and reveal that nothing within the something. Now, why am I referring to God as nothing? Only because God defies anything that us human beings can describe as a something. To us, a something has to have a beginning and an end and boundaries, and it has to have description, definition, properties. God defies all of this. Thus, we refer to God as nothing, meaning the nothingness, which is the absence of what we call something. And therefore, when God created through concealment and contraction, the something from the infinite, undefinable nothing, it was so that we can then later take this something and find within this something the nothingness, quote unquote, of God, which now will explain a total different concept. There was no reason for God to have created light on the first day. The verse clearly says in, in Psalms that darkness does not stop him from seeing. He doesn't need light. So why did God create light first? And this action argument, what on the first day was created first? Heaven, earth, water, or light? Some say they bring a proof one way. Another brings another proof another way. There's an argument on it in the Medrash. And nevertheless, Rashi is of the opinion that light was created before anything. Now, the question is, why did God create life, light first? The definition of light is illumination. Illumination is not for the sake of self, but for the sake of others. Others should see. God had no need for light, and light had no need for light. So until Tuesday, where there would be living creatures, or until Friday, where there will be the human being, there seems to be no reason to have created light. And thus light was purposeless for at least three days or maybe even six days. Thus our mystical sages want to know why did God create light first? Additionally, let's take it even further. If you look in the verse, there's something very, very hard to understand. It says in verse four, and God saw the light that it is good. And he separated. And God separated. What did he separate? He saw light is good. What was the separation here? So our sages say that there's another interesting thing. If you look into all the creations, it says, And God said, Let there be, and it was so. By light, it doesn't say that. It says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Why does it say Vayehi Or instead of Vayehi Chain? And it was so, just like he says by all the other creations. 
So mystically speaking, our sages tell us that what happened was the original light that God created was the infinite essence revelation. And the world would not, God saw that the wicked would misuse this. Thus he hid it. When did he hide it for? When would he use it? And the answer is, when Messiah, when Mashiach comes, then God will remove the light from its covering. And once again, we would have the omnipotent essence, revelation light of God. That means that God created something on the first day, which no one will use for close to 6,000 years. Why? Why did God do that? Why did God have to create the light? Additionally, if you look into, in, as I shared with you, everything that God created, he said, and it was good. According to Kabbalah, built on the Talmud and Tractic Sota, when it says that, that the mother of Moses, when he was born, she saw that he was good. And the sages say, I mean, every mother sees a baby as good. How did you, what does it mean she saw the baby that it was good? And the Talmud answers, because the entire house filled with the divine light. So we see from a deeper meaning that the word good means light, which now means on every day of creation, when God said he saw and it was good, means mystically that he imbued light into every day and every creation. So now we have that God created on the first day of life that wouldn't be used for close to 6,000 years. And then we have a ray of that light he creates into every single creation. What's going on here? And the answer is that God had of the seven habits of highly affected people. God is not a person. But God created the beginning with the end in mind. Now you'll understand what the Baal Shem Tov said, that God created everything in a state of concealment for us to reveal the light. God is telling us that the ultimate mission and the ultimate purpose in the world of darkness that I created is for you to find and reveal the light. Now let's get practical about this. I want to just take one of the most powerful tools that our generation has. It's called the internet. Now we all know that in the internet, there is such a dark web. There is the most unthinkable things happening. There is, I mean, from, from, from uh, human trafficking. I mean, the, the web is, is, is like a Satan. But yet on the other hand, we are right now learning Torah on that same vehicle. That means within everything that God creates, there's light and darkness. God saw it and said it's good. But that doesn't stop us from also saying it's bad and it's dark. Now, our job is not, you'll understand that the Jews, and I'm not talking against the, the Amish, but the Judaism is the exact opposite. We would never disengage. Quite the contrary. Everything that God created, what did God create it for, if not for goodness and light and spreading light. Thus today, 
any human being that wants to learn Torah in any language on any topic of the Torah just needs to go to the great Rabbi Google and you can have everything there. You can listen to audio, video, halacha, mysticism, Torah, Musr, Talmud. You can finish the entire Talmud without ever meeting a rabbi. Just you and the internet. So God is saying within everything there is light. Of course I didn't reveal the light. That's your job. Beratius, bara elokim. Reveal the elokim that's within everything. And thus, the first thing God created was the end, which is the ultimate revelation, the light that will be revealed in the times of Mashiach. And now in closing, I want to share with you one more thought. And that is the Zohar Chadash. There's a certain part of the Zohar called Zohar Chadash. The Zohar Chadash on Medrash Ruth, on the, on the homiletic teaching of Ruth, says as follows. It's, we just said that God saw that the light will be misused, right? I mean, just think of what's what already. I mean, we use the example of the internet, how it's being misused. Imagine a total revelation of divinity and omnipotence, what would happen? Thus, we said that God hid it. So the sages want to know, where did God hide it? What do you mean he hid it? Where did he hide it? So it, it answers, Gonzoi Batorah. God hid the light, the original light in the Torah, which is the reason why throughout the Talmud we'll find, and, and, and up, to, up to our generation, we find that people whose entire life was Torah was able to perform miracles through the light within the Torah. You have the famous story of Shem Yochai when there was no rain and he gave a Dvar Torah on a certain verse and all of a sudden it started raining. We always have that. We had what we called Sar HaTorah, the minister of Torah, the sage, who was able to use the light within Torah to perform miracles. And that's the secret of all the miracles you hear in Talmud, unless it clearly says they did it through prayer instead of through Torah. Now, with that being said, we now understand our mission. So God hid a ray of delight in every single one of his creatures and creations and experiences. And then God hid the infinite light within the Torah. Now we understand by the human mind studying Torah and by his body using the 613 commandments, using his possessions to do mitzvot, he is revealing the light. That's how you reveal the light. By looking at things not through the dark eyes of human egocentrism, but rather I'm looking at it through the theocentric of the Torah. What does the Torah say this is? What does the Torah say I should do with this? How does the Torah define it? And how can I use this in my connection to God? And with this, what I want to just close, that the Baal Shem Tov says, if you do numerology, the word or, Aleph, Vav, Resh, which equals 207, is the same numerical value of the word raz, which means secret. Why? Because through the light of Torah, you can reveal the secret within everything. And you know what? I keep on saying one last thing. I'm going to say it again. One last thing. 
I want to share with you that through this, I believe we can understand another teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. The verse says, see, I have placed before you life and death. Choose life. Simply speaking, it means you can live a life that'll bring life. You can live a life that'll bring death. Baal Shem Tov says no. What it means is in everything you do, there's life and death. Meaning, when you eat and you focus on the taste buds, you focus on the physicality of the food, then you're focusing and you're choosing the death of the food. However, if you're focusing on the divine spark, the power of sharing, the power of getting health and serving God with that strength, then you've chosen not the death of the food, but the life of the food. Once again, Bereshis Bora Elohim, reveal the Elohim within the food that you eat. Find the light, the ketov that God put into the food that you eat and use it in a service of God by helping a fellow man, sharing your food, making a blessing before you eat the food, making a blessing after you eat the food and using the energy for acts of goodness. People, I am done. I am shutting off the recording and unmuting everyone.